The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... Now that health care reform has been adopted, Congress and ACB can once again focus on other important legislation. Plus, do's and don'ts for saving your school for the blind. Welcome to ACB Reports for May 2010. Let's begin with a legislative update from Eric Bridges, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. Eric, now that it has become the law, what happens next in health care reform? Several years of regulatory implementation of health care. The bill set forth a lot of regulatory provisions that the Department of Health and Human Services are going to have to pick up and do uh, such fun things as notice of proposed rulemakings to really set the regulatory guidelines for how all of this is going to be implemented. There will literally be hundreds of these before the guts of this health care plan is fully implemented in the next probably four to five years. Several states have said that they will file a lawsuit in the middle of May to have the health care reform package tossed out. But this regulatory process will at least begin. Is that correct? Yes. It's a state-by-state deal, and those lawsuits could take a while. So the health care reform package is now the law of the land, and it is now being kicked to the federal agencies that will uh, oversee the implementation of that law. So the public will have a chance to comment on some of this, along with various affected industries, as to how all of this is going to shake itself out over the next few years. The health care package, for quite some time, totally consumed the legislative process. What's up now in terms of legislation that ACB is watching? It consumed literally everything, Mike. And it didn't just put the disability community out in the cold. It put every other group that had legislation that it was pushing on the Hill out in the cold also. What this does is it provides an opening for ACB to reapproach committee staff and also members about moving the Pedestrian Safety Enhancement Act forward as well as H.R. 3101, the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act. And having those pieces of legislation be elevated further up on the to-do list of, for instance, the House Energy and Commerce Committee. The House Energy and Commerce Committee took a leading role in the health care debate. And so literally nothing else got done over the last 14, 15 months. The committee staff has met with us three or four times since healthcare passing to let us know that this is an issue that they are interested in, the telecom bill, and look forward to working with us and industry on moving it forward before the end of the year. Now, what moving forward means is not necessarily that a bill is going to be passed through the House and then through the Senate and signed by the President, but that it will get the proper attention from the leadership and also from the senior committee staff. That is encouraging. This is a condensed calendar year for the legislative agenda to be moved forward because it's an election year, and the month of August is always a month where members are gone, but then you also have the month of October being eaten up by members going home and campaigning. So it is a uh, shortened year, so it'll be interesting to see how much we can get 
dialogue moving so that when we start the 112th Congress in January next year, we have made enough progress so that we can see both bills passed in the 112th Congress. In the meantime, then, what needs to happen on the local level? What we really need is to continue to have people, and ACB members have been outstanding with getting meetings in district offices with their members and with staff, calling the Washington offices to either thank the member for signing on as a co-sponsor or to request that they sign on as a co-sponsor. I'm so proud that uh, H.R. 734, the Pedestrian Safety Enhancement Act, has over 230 co-sponsors. These members represent every end of the political spectrum, conservative to progressive and everywhere in between. It shows that our membership can have a significant impact on an issue, give it proper visibility. It's a shame that the health care debate acted sort of as a vacuum and just sucked everything else out of the discussion on Capitol Hill because a lot of people know about this issue. And now it's a matter of seeing how we can get this dialogue moved forward into a uh, congressional hearing. On the other hand, H.R. 3101, the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act, has 44 co-sponsors, which is fantastic. In the last Congress, it only had 15. And here again, it's a credit to the ACB affiliates across the country who have been very active in contacting their members to get them to sign on. We need to keep the visibility of these issues top of mind in members' offices as we move into the summer months so that we can continue to show the leadership of the House and of the Senate that these issues are something that they need to not just take seriously, but actually follow through in some tangible way of support, like a hearing. At one point, there was some discussion about hearings regarding quiet cars within the Department of Transportation that were separate from, but caused by the congressional interest in the Pedestrian Safety Act. Has anything developed in that front? In June of 2008, there was a day-long public meeting that the Department of Transportation held to talk about the dangers that quieter vehicles, such as hybrids and electric vehicles, pose to the blindness pedestrian population. And that was good. Last year on tax day, so almost a year ago to the day, Congressman Ed Towns, who's the chief sponsor of H.R. 734, called a meeting with the Department of Transportation, the Society of Automotive Engineers, NFB, and us to talk about the need for the government to look at this pedestrian safety issue and begin working on it because ultimately that's what the bill sets forth when it's passed. It has the Department of Transportation study minimum sound emission standard and then how to implement the actual sound that would be emitted from these vehicles to enable blind or visually impaired pedestrians to independently identify these vehicles. Over the last year, the Department of Transportation has undertaken a study to identify the problem. And last week, they released phase one of their study, which in essence says what the blindness community already knows. And that is that these hybrid and electric vehicles, when traveling at low speeds, present very little noise and not enough noise at low speeds, like under 20 miles an hour, 
for a blind pedestrian to be able to independently identify it and safely cross the street or do other things. So the last year was spent with acoustic engineers and all sorts of folks within DOT studying this issue, utilizing blind and visually impaired test subjects, uh, doing work at organizations like the Perkins School and the Carroll Center to drill down and begin to research it from the blindness perspective, which needs to happen if we're going to move forward into phase two. And phase two of the study is scheduled to begin later this summer to look at the sound emission standard and the potential solution for how can these vehicles emit a sound that is independently identifiable for blind and visually impaired people, but also does not add to the din of noise on a street corner or on a roadway. That's really what the second phase of this study is going to focus on. So the Department of Transportation has confirmed, as you say, what we already knew, but it actually helps our position when we do go to our Congress people and to others because we now have data that backs up what we tell them. Absolutely. And as frustrating as government can be in terms of taking a long time to come up with a good plan for a study and then doing the study and then reporting out the results, this first step was absolutely necessary in order to move forward with what it is we want to get done. Back to the telecommunications issues again. There's a hearing coming up regarding accessibility and uh, telecommunications equipment. That is not a congressional hearing. So what is this access board hearing? They have uh, released an advance notice of proposed rulemaking dealing with Section 508 of the Rehab Act. And what they're seeking to do is to get public comment on some of the provisions that the disability community would like to see included in an update of Section 508, which deals with technology and uh, technology within the federal workplace. The government has been historically pretty bad at hiring individuals with disabilities. They've not had a very great track record of that over the last 10, 12 years. But then once the individual comes in to be employed at a federal agency, many times the software and systems that the individual is expected to utilize as part of their daily work are not accessible to them. So therefore, they have to rely upon others to get their daily work done. There's provisions in there like that, and there's also stuff dealing with accessible kiosks, stuff at airports, a whole slew of areas that the Access Board is wanting to look at, given that technology continues to move forward. I'm assuming that you or someone from ACB will be there for that meeting. Yes, and ACB will be commenting on the advance notice of rulemaking. Some individuals within the ACB Information Access Committee are going to be drafting, and I will be participating with them and uh, putting together comments. This report from Eric Bridges was recorded on April 14th. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. Attendees of the ACB Affiliate President's Meeting in February received a lot of information about saving residential schools for the blind. One of the speakers on this subject was Dr. Michael Bina, a respected educator who is the superintendent of the Maryland School for the Blind. I'm not just talking about something. I'm talking about something which should not only be near and dear to your heart, 
but think about future generations. Schools for the Blind have put opportunities in people's paths for generations. Now, the Oregon School for the Blind just closed. Other schools are under close scrutiny and fire. Why are you possibly in this fight? And why does it interest ACB? You are all busy with jobs and family. You barely have enough time for yourselves. You didn't live in Oregon. You have no interest really in Iowa or Illinois or North Carolina. But your answer to this question can be found in a story about four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. A school for the blind was closing in the state, and there was lots of critical work to be done. Everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did. Somebody got mad because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. We are everybody in this room, and we must not wait for somebody, anybody, because nobody may step up. We know that all across our country, uh, schools are under fire. But I want to tell you something. I started in the blindness field actually in 1965, and even back then, those who didn't know beans about blindness questioned the value of our schools. Those that question the needs for our schools fall under three categories. One, they think that we stereotypically are harsh, impersonal, cold institutions, and therefore are harmful. Second, those that think that all schools for the blind have students who should be placed in regular classrooms in their home schools. And then there are those who think that schools for the blind are way too expensive. Now, my point is that when many of you were in schools for the blind, your parents, your school for the blind administrators, and ACB were fighting these issues, and you didn't even know it. And while you were in school benefiting, you did not realize that somebody, anybody, nobody, and everybody were fighting for you to have this opportunity put forth in your life's path. And now many of those old fighters are retired, some have died, and now it is time for new and fresh troops. You can call this payback, your civic responsibility. You are not doing it for you. You're doing it for the current students and those who will come after you. The Maryland School for the Blind last week had a legislative day at our state capitol in Annapolis. Fifty percent of the parents there advocating for the Maryland School for the Blind were parents of former students. That really struck me. There was a father there whose daughter last year had passed away. He was in Annapolis advocating for the School for the Blind, and it was all noted by legislators. There was no self-interest in the advocacy. There was someone who knew the value of the school and wanted to pave the way so opportunities could continue to be put in the other parents' and students' paths. I'm going to give you a little historical perspective. Back in the 70s, there was mainstreaming, of course. That was a threat. But it was welcome because we all believed that there was a place for public schools that had proper services, and schools for the blind were needed, and they could work together. By the way, our field were pioneers. We started mainstreaming students in 1900 in Chicago and Cleveland, so mainstreaming was nothing new to us. But then in 1985, we got the push for full inclusion and the overinterpretation of the concept of the least restrictive environment. As Kenneth Jernigan put it uh, very ably one day when Leroy Saunders and I were meeting with him, he said, full inclusion? That just sounds like mainstreaming with a vengeance. And then the concept of least restrictive environment. I used to challenge people, why don't we say most productive setting as opposed to least restrictive environment? 
find the placement that is not the least restrictive, but the one that is the most productive. Schools for the Blind can be, for many children, the most productive placement where expectations are high and where you cannot made to feel uh, different. A sighted fifth grader at the Indiana School for the Blind visited from a local public school, and he told the story best, I thought. He said, when I came here, I thought the students would be different. They are not different at all. They are just like I am. They just do things differently, like Braille. Are schools for the blind dinosaurs or mainstays? Perhaps I will shock some of you today when I say that residential schools are a thing of the past. But before you think that I've lost my mind, I also want to add that residential schools are very much a thing of the present and the most uh, definitely a very much needed provision in the future. Residential schools are not dinosaurs on the verge of extinction. Rather, I contend there are places of distinction. Proud that in the past and today, and clearly in the future, these schools are and will continue to be valid, beneficial, and very necessary for some students all of the time and for all students some of the time. Who can deny the success of our many graduates like so many of you in the audience today? When you go on the hill, you're the products of quality specialized services. In the old days, we used to debate which was best, a public school or a residential school. Both are needed and both can be the best depending on a particular student's needs at different times in their education. The law specifies the availability of a continuum so parents can make choices where the most productive setting can be, and which in Oregon today is not possible. It is not one or the other, it is both, and both are needed and necessary. The problem is when you take away one of them. Today there are many myths which persist negatively and influence decision makers. But most disturbing to me is that many children are being excluded from those attending these schools to the point that today only 7% of children in our country that are blind or visually impaired attend schools for the blind. The first myth that residential schools segregate blind children from society. We are told by others, most of whom who have never set foot on a school for the blind campus, that we are segregationists. This to me is very negative, inflammatory, and inappropriate. Some strongly push for elimination of residential schools. Those full inclusion initiatives are counter to federal law, which mandate the full continuum or an array of services. Could you imagine in medicine that doctors would take away a life-saving drug, which has proven to be a reliable treatment from their arsenal, which would have the potential to benefit even one person? They wouldn't do that. I contend that we should be widening our options and not in any way reducing them. Education as well as medicine would be taking a step backwards. Schools for the blind are magnet schools. They're magnet schools as much as there's magnet schools for art or music. And magnet schools are being advocated as a way to improve American schools, yet in spite of schools for the blind proven track record as very productive places for boosting self-image, confidence, and solid skills for future success, they continue to be underutilized. And then meaningful integration is very possible in segregated settings. Just because a child lives at home, attends a neighborhood school, and is in physical proximity to non-handicapped children, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are truly integrated and that they can be isolated islands in the mainstream, but our critics don't call this inappropriate isolation segregation. It is less important to me where children go to school than that wherever they go, they get what they need when they need to be in a positive climate. 
Another myth is that the law says that to the maximum extent possible, handicapped children must be educated with children without disabilities. And I feel that blind children shouldn't avoid contact with other blind children and that such contact is clearly beneficial. And one parent said it best, how dare the lawmakers tell me who my child's friends will be? Is my blind child someone who should be avoided by other children? I've seen in my experience awfully good friendships and counseling going on between blind students and our PhD psychologists couldn't begin to match. We must admit and also address the fact that we have large numbers of children underserved in many of our programs, so this is not a time to reduce options on the continuum. Another myth is that residential schools are too expensive. We spend $50,000 per child on national average, and public schools spend about $3,000. Our per capita costs are high, yes, but likewise offer more than bare-bones service, and we provide five to seven day, 24 hours a day programming. Think about this medical analogy. You don't seem to worry about the cost of medical treatment when we roll our child, our spouse, or ourselves in for life-saving surgery. Why do we keep letting our pocketbooks rather than our consciences drive our educational decisions? I'd rather pay now than have some of our students pay for it later in life. If you think schools for the blind are expensive, try ignorance or illiteracy. And that was one of the things in Oregon. They said that they were expensive, but I would say to them in Oregon, quality and intensive programs come with a price tag, and I contend most strongly that not learning to read and write Braille or other skills well, to me, qualifies most clearly as life-threatening. Would you not agree? And I'll conclude with um, another myth, is that residential schools are old-fashioned. Yes, we are old-fashioned because we do model, require, and encourage old-fashioned basic skills, values, and manners. Now I'm going to give you some do's and don'ts. Number one, don't close the barn door after the horses have run off. Rather, tend to the horses in the barn and keep an eye on the door. Once a school is under attack, the door has already been open, and it's difficult to urge a horse to stop when it sees the hayfield outside. Running after a bolting horse is not effective and is reactionary. Proactive action ahead of time is needed, and that's why you have this wonderful panel. Don't, number two, don't wait for someone else. As Henry Miller said, don't look for miracles. You are the miracle. Don't, number three, don't wait until the big flood before you start to build the ark. Rather, plan ahead. The Bible reported that the weather forecast was clear and sunny skies with low humidity with no chance of precipitation when Noah decided to build the ark. And remember, he not only built the ark, he started collecting animals two by two. Do number four. Make your school indispensable. Make your school so valuable in everyone's eyes that if any threat comes, a nuclear reaction would explode from parents alumni, ACB, NFB, the local schools, or your state departments of education. Could you imagine the outrage if they tried to close all the ice cream factories in our country? Ice cream lovers would come out of the woodwork. Could you imagine if they tried to close all the breweries? <laughs> War would be declared. Could you imagine if there was a new law proposed to make chocolate illegal? Now, that is really criminal, immoral, and unconstitutional. <laughs> but the question is, how can we make schools for the blind as indispensable as chocolate, beer, and ice cream? Because it's much more important.
for the students and the families for generations to come. How do we do this? And this is what I suggest. You work with your schools to make them stronger. Each school for the blind in the country can be better. Develop mentorship programs where you are a solid role models. Contact your state legislators and ask that they tour the school with you and the superintendent, uh, not when it is raining, but when the winds are calm. This two-hour meeting will show them the current needs of the students are being met. It will show them that the products of the school, you, would be not possible with all the services and the caring staff. Help your school to keep its enrollment up. When enrollment goes down, costs go up, and that is when legislators and departments of education see and uh, why they start thinking these schools are expensive for so few kids. Tell parents in your community who may be in public school programs about Schools for the Blind outreach service. Tell them about the school summer programs, about the year-round programs. Become an ambassador for your school. Volunteer there. As an ACB chapter, have a quarterly meeting with the superintendent. Become acquainted with the school's governance, what the politics are, what the issues are, what the opportunities might be. Attack it from opportunities. Get your alumni association on board with you. In Indiana and Maryland, we have very strong alumni associations, and I know they would go to war if anybody threatened these schools. If the school's governance is a problem and is not supportive, look what other states have done and see if the governance can be changed. In Indiana, we were under the Department of Health and we were prevented from growing and thriving. Our ACB, NFB parents and alumni groups established a task force, and in two years we changed the statutes related to the school and were able to get our own governor-appointed school board. Toot the horn of the school. Remember, the state uh, school superintendent cannot speak uh, against the governor's office or the legislature at a time of need. They are hired by the state, and they have to keep the party line. Work to keep programs strong. I told uh, the MSB staff at the beginning of the school year, we must, underscored must, improve our academic achievement, our test scores, that our students must become more independent. I declared war at the beginning of the school year on dependence, and I proclaimed a declaration of student independence. I told the staff, if our scores don't go up, if our students don't become more independent, parents will stop sending students to us, our enrollment will go down, our cost will go up, and we will need to reduce our staff, and I'm not about ready to retire. This is either a dangerous dynamic or a wonderful opportunity. To be indispensable, you can't just say it, you truly have to be indispensable. Toot the horn of the current students. Do number five, build bridges to somewhere and to the future. Get to know your state school superintendent and the state special ed director. Get to know your local school superintendent and the local director of special education. Introduce yourselves to them. You are the somebody, the anybody, the person that needs to do that. Get to know your state and local parent groups. Offer your help. Don't be a burr in the saddle, but use honey. However, when and if honey is not effective, become a burr under the saddle. Build bridges with the state and uh, local newspapers. Get positive articles in the paper and on television. Get to know the media so when something big breaks or there is a threat, they will call you. It is hard to build a trusting relationship during a crisis. Do number six, act locally. I can come to Arkansas, I can go to Arizona, however, I have a funny accent. I would be seen as a carpetbagger peddling my opinions, but they will know I am not a constituent and they will know that I don't pay taxes in their state. 
what you do, therefore you have to be the spokesperson. Do number seven, blow the whistle and sound the alarm that you need help in your state before you need it. We carpetbaggers can coach, assist, and encourage you, plus give you good organization, but you have to let us know. AER, Cosby, NFB, ACB, we are all allies on common ground. When Eric from ACB and I were in the White House, NFB spoke the same message at ACB did. When the two organizations talk about Braille, they're talking the same language. The Council of Schools for Blind needs your help, and you need our help. Good luck building your ark. Good luck lining up the animals two by two. Good luck gathering the animals, especially the porcupines and the skunks. Dr. Michael Bina, superintendent of the Maryland School for the Blind, was recorded by Brian Charlson and Paul Edwards during the ACB Affiliate President's Meeting in February 2010. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.